ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour with Rochelle Hunt on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Do you feel like you're paid fairly? What is fair pay? Is it paying people the same wage if they do the same job? Or should you be paid based on your qualifications or how good you are at what you do? What if you've worked in a job for 20 years? Should you be paid more than a junior? Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Bronwyn O'Shea, joining you from ABC Wodonga. Bron, let's face facts, talking about pay is taboo and our Mm. pay structure, it's really messy. You know, from businesses who rely on trainee or teenage wages to executives who get paid millions and millions for what they do. Yes, a tricky, tricky question. What is fair? And there's a lot to think about, isn't there, when you talk about paying people what they're worth. Um, You might have heard the changes proposed this week that would give casual workers the choice to go permanent if they're actually just working regular, ongoing hours anyway. Uh, We've had a lot of debate, particularly post-pandemic, about a living wage for the unemployed. And You know, we always hear there's still so much work to be done on the gender pay gap as well. I think the pandemic really shone a light on how we pay people and how we value the work that people do and our reliance on casualisation. And yes, there is a theory, and we'll get into some of this, that some people want to be casual and that that 20% loading is really beneficial. But for a lot of people, they don't want to be casual and they're kind of working like a full-time employee, but not getting any of the benefits of being full-time. So casualisation comes into this. Unpaid internships, I think, is a really big part of a lot of businesses' structure. Do they rely on, you know, trainees, on interns, on having people for long periods of time on a low wage? And if that was to change, how much of it would it change profit margins for people or whether or not people would keep their jobs? Yeah, there's a whole lot to break down when it comes to are we paid fairly and what does that even look like? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. We're talking being paid fairly. Do you feel like you're paid fairly? What does being paid fairly even look like? one 772774 You can text as well, 0437-774-774. And the differences of what people get paid for the work that they do, Bron, sometimes it's hard to know, right? Because no one really talks about their wages. But then there are some wages where you are left flabbergasted <laughs> as to... How and why are you paid? Where did that figure come from? (laughs) Where do you, why are you paid that much? This is Deb O'Neill. She's a New South Wales ALP senator. Just recently, she was questioning the Deloitte chief executive about his salary. Mr Powick, are you really worth seven times the salary of the Australian Prime Minister? No. At the end of the day, we're in a different system. We're in a free market private enterprise. And in a free market, the salaries, I don't set my my salary, never have set my salary. And my salary is set to be commensurate with others that play a similar role. I reckon we could get a group of us together and divide up his job, Bron, and we would all have very, very high wages and probably only have to work a month or two a year. (laughs) But looking at what constitutes a fair pay, if you're a casual, if you're an unpaid intern, if that's expected of you, and depending on the work that you do, do you feel like you're paid fairly? Dr Gemma Beale is a Senior Project Officer with the Australian Industrial Transformation Institute. She's based at Flinders University. Gemma, there's lots of discussion at the moment around everything from the casualisation of our workforce to a concept of same job, same pay. Can you explain a little bit about what same job, same pay is? Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, And yes, I certainly can. And I think it's actually a relatively simple idea. Um, It's related to a bill that the um, Albanese government has put forward as part of um, following through on their election promise And it's very simple. It would ensure that workers who are employed by labour hire companies receive the same wage as the people who are directly employed um, colleagues of the same 
workforce. So and why why is that a problem that they're seeking to solve? What's what's the problem they're trying to deal with there? So a problem we have at the moment is that you can um, it's called a, it's what's called the triangular relationship on some work sites, and it can have more points than a triangle. It's when you have multiple employers wor- um, working in running in, uh, in charge of paying people on the same work site, and you have the uh, direct employer, which might be a mining site, for example, and then labour hire companies send in extra people. And those labour hire workers are often paid much less than the people they're working alongside and for who they're doing exactly the same work. Do you think that the average worker knows if they're being paid less or being paid more than the person working alongside them? And I guess my follow-up question to that is, does the average worker have the confidence to then raise that with their boss? Well, I think there's a lot of things to consider around um, confidence is maybe um, not the right way to think about it because we have, at the moment, very low unemployment. So that means there's not a lot of jobs um, going. So if you raise something with your boss and they're unhappy with you doing so and uh, you lose your job, that might be a very scary situation for you. Yeah. When you hear the term same job, same pay... I guess it's easy to leap to the assumption that that means that if I do a job and the person next to me does the same job, we are going to be paid exactly the same within a workplace. Is that mm-hmm. what this bill is is doing as well, Gemma? Not just in labour hire, but within your own workplace if you're a direct employee too? Uh, this is much more focused on labour hire companies than it is on um, direct employees. Okay. Is it something that you think is likely to happen? I really hope so. We've known for a very long time that this is quite a significant problem um, and I think that there's uh, a lot of... I think it passes the pub test, really. Um, uh, the idea that everyone who's doing the same job should co- go home with the same paycheck. The business groups that oppose this, and I don't know if you've seen, but there's lots of, of um, ad campaigns attacking this same job, same pay bill. And, mm-hmm. and the business groups that oppose it say that it's, it's actually not fair because you're not paying people based on their experience mm. and their skill level. It's too simplistic. I have seen those adverts uh, and I would say they're an outright fiction. The um, bill is very explicit about it not affecting the ordinary classifications, the skill and responsibility that are already embedded in EBAs. So if you're paid more because of tenure, because of management responsibilities or because of skill or any other legitimate reason, that is fine and totally unaffected. It just means for people who are actually doing the same job, they'll get the same pay. Thanks so much for explaining it to us, Gemma. We appreciate it. No problem. Thank you for having me. This is Dr Gemma Beale. She's the Senior Project Officer with the Australian Industrial Transformation Institute at Flinders University. So many different texts coming in on pay and pay structures. This, it says, unpaid internships are just akin to slavery. Why is it generally high-paid professional businesses that are the ones that commit these atrocities? That's from Brian. And this, it says, you're not paid more as a casual. Casual is 20% more, but this equals sick leave, annual leave, long service leave. So when you take a sick day, you're funding that with that 20% load in, it's the same pay. As a casual, you can fund your own annual leave with that 20%. Now, that's the theory, right? But I don't know if you've been a casual for a long period of time, do those sums add up? Does that 20% load in really make it that you get the same pay? Because what happens when you're casual is there is no regular work. There is no guarantee that you're going to have work five days a week or four days a week or whatever it is that you mean. So you might be getting that 20% load in on the three days, but you may need five days bronze. So is it equal? Not to mention your ability to have job security, which um, then allows you to access a loan, for example, to buy a home. So there are all sorts of reasons why a casual job is is kind of a different situation than having that ongoing, regular, reliable, permanent work.
This says you're comparing casual work with full-time work. That's wrong. The comparison is between casual work and permanent employment. I'm not casual. I'm a permanent part-time, two days a week. I get sick pay and annual leave, but I'm not full-time. And others saying we see and we saw the inequity during COVID, but mostly now it's all forgotten and we've just gone back to it. People using gig workers, Amazon, Uber, without even caring that these companies treat workers really badly. And we did really have a huge spotlight that went on to some of these workers during the pandemic and during COVID. So have we gone back? Have we fixed anything? Have we changed anything? Do you feel like you're paid fairly? And if you're not, do you feel like you have the confidence or the strength to put your hand up and say, I'm not being paid fairly? On ABC Radio, Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Michelle Hunt with you in Melbourne. Bronwyn O'Shea is joining you from ABC Wodonga. And we're talking... What constitutes a fair pay? Do you know, believe that you're paid fairly? Alan's in St Albans. Good morning, Alan. Good morning. I think the uh, the big thing that overpay that COVID first established was the security guard pay. Remember, that was mm-hmm. the issue over, over the hotel and the disease getting out. And what it exposed was what us in the security industry knew was going on was that there were people... There were businesses take set up and taking advantage of the student uh, international students who were happy for any work and were working for as little as fifteen dollars an hour on twelve hour shifts on Sundays when it should have been triple pay and should have been at that stage thirty eight to forty dollars an hour mm. and those of us who were staff on other companies. We found it hard to get jobs because there were complete businesses set up like that. And in fact, at the hotel, the government had, the hotel uh, industry, the government had signed a contract with these companies, major companies, for $80 an hour per person that they hired. I think you've raised two really good things, Alan, which is looking at businesses being set up on these models, but also to how we value the work. And the security guards, that's a really big part of this conversation do we value that work and do we value the responsibility that that job entails and is that paid fairly hospitality bron is coming through thick and strong in this conversation saying uh, i'm an ex-hospo worker of 30 years i totally oppose exploitation of young people but a mature kitchen worker with years of experience understands work ethic and more productive compared to a young school kid. It takes experience to learn that work ethic. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, lots of other texts that we'll get to through the hour. But Josh Cullinan is Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Welcome, Josh. Thanks for having me. We've talked a little bit about this suggestion this week that casual workers who are basically working like a permanent employee anyway, regular ongoing hours, um, could potentially have the the um, the power or the control to say, you know what, I want to be made permanent. Um, can you t- talk to us a little bit about how that would work in practice? Well, well, in practice, the the rights in Australia are very weak and have been very weak for casual workers for a very long time. And so uh, introducing structures which properly recognise that many casual workers are in fact ongoing and are working in industries which everyone knows require workers day in, day out, week in, week out, um, providing those workers some semblance of security is something that most of the rest of the world has acted on. Um, But here in Australia, we've basically um, institutionalised and made endemic casual work in a number of sections of of our society. Um, And the changes that will properly recognise that workers can opt for secure work arrangements where the work is needed are long overdue in Australia. In the areas that you work in, which is retail and fast food, as a as a part of the workers' union for both areas there, these are two areas that love 
casualisation and have, I guess, thrived and, and set up their businesses on casualisation for a long time. And yes, it does work for some people. But then this message, it says, the problem with casual in many jobs is that you're expected to be available every day just in case you're required. And yet you're never paid to be on call. Also, you're not allowed to cancel a shift and yet employers do that to us all the time. Is that balance of power just totally out of whack, Josh? Totally out of whack. Totally out of whack. And and in fact, casual work is where I first became active uh, with workers and with unions 25, 30 years ago. I've travelled the world, gone to international meetings about this. Australia is way behind when it comes to these kinds of regular employment and everything that goes with it. The reality is casual work uh, suppresses wages for everyone. So we talk about a 25% loading. But the problem is without the job security, workers just can't put their hands up. They can't come together. They find it almost impossible to work together to get higher wages and better conditions. So it's really at ground zero to provide the most basic secure employment so that workers can then dream of something better. Josh, there's text here that says, is it true, it is true, sorry, that you can't take out a mortgage um, if only employed on a casual basis. But then this says, you know, having worked as a casual chef in hospitality, most prefer that as they're rarely able to take sick leave and they prefer the flexibility. So if, if these proposed changes came into effect, would people still have the ability to say, you know what, I, I actually do want to stay as a casual. I don't, I want that leave loading. I want that flexibility. I don't want to be locked into a, a permanent ongoing role uh look I, I do understand that 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 at the moment the proposals are to continue to allow workers to make such a choice but but i should say that these are um almost ghost-like uh these instances of people that prefer casual work many of them um are only prefer the casual work because of the higher wages which are systematically um suppressed because of casual work uh, so, you know, in our sectors, we, we, we had an agreement made last year where uh, a bookshop provided ongoing work to those who wanted it. Every single worker that was entitled immediately moved on to ongoing employment. Um, so what we find is, is that the vast, vast majority want secure work, um, particularly in those parts of the economy that currently pay minimum wages or very close to minimum wages. What about businesses um, and, that yeah. legitimately, you know, for whatever the nature of their business, say, is really up and down and, and sometimes they're super busy and other times they're not, and they really require that flexibility to be able to have, have people on a casual basis? Well, I think that there's a whole lot of solutions for that, but, but in Australia right now, there's no proposals to take that away from them. So when we look at something like the largest fast food company in Australia that makes up more than half of all employees are employed at that one massive international company, um, they have 85% of their workforce as casual. Now, everyone knows wow. that there needs to be people on the drive through window. There needs to be people cleaning. There needs to be people at the, at the counter. There needs to be people making the burgers and the fries, right? Everyone knows that. So, so 85% is just massively over. Um, similarly, with many of the massive retailers, they have between 30 and 50% of their workforce is casual. It's just... If you know the hours staffing. that you're open and when you're busy. Josh, can you just stay with us? Because I want to talk to you about young workers. I mean, one of the big employers that you just mentioned there, most of those workers, let's face fact, are also under the age of 25, if not under the age of 18. But Simon's in Morwell. Good morning, Simon. What did you want to say? Yeah, good morning. Oh, a couple of points to make. Firstly, when I started working in the 1970s, the casual loading was 50% of the basic full-time rate. Now, what this meant, of course, was you could afford to work for two or three days a week and make a vague living. You ran the risk you'd earn nothing for the week, which is why the high loading was there. But you were available for genuine shortfalls in wages in, in workers for employers. There was a bit of flexibility in the system. Now we're in a situation where last time I transferred from casual to permanent, my wage went up. Why? Because the casuals were paid the base rate plus 15%. The permanents were paid about 20% above award. So the whole concept of this loading is just complete and utter nonsense. It, I said it at the time when I was uh, when Margaret Thatcher brought in. She was talking about a flexible workforce. And essentially what that meant was the ability for them to say flex off. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
But, but I, that's a but huge job. Yeah. Gov- sorry, the government proposal that you should have the right to ask to be made permanent is the wrong way around. The default should be you've got a permanent job. You have the right to ask to be made ah, casual. Opt- yeah, that's different because I... Simon, you raise a really good point and I want to put that to you, Josh. If you Let's say you're casual and you, but yet you're working pretty much as a full-time employee and you want to be put onto the books and made full-time. Do you run the risk of, of losing your job? In, in a practical sense, in, in retail, fast food and hospitality, yes. In a practical sense, the current structure means that employers are concerned. So, so the largest, for example, the largest supermarket chain in Australia has a system which notifies their employ- the, the store managers when workers are coming up towards an entitlement to potentially be made ongoing. And, and a responsible employer will always tell us that that's so that they can prepare for it and make a proper offer. But what we find is workers' rosters start changing as soon as those notices go out. Um, so so really the, the way it works in Australia is that um, the workers who do put their hands up, when it's not done collectively with the power of their union behind them, they, they are at immense risk, yes. There's a text here, Josh, which I wouldn't mind your thoughts on. It says, pay structures and work categories are now um, are now such as to be complex, confusing and messy, mm. reinforced by pay based on different duties at different hours. These are then defined by codes on your pay slip that are never explained, let alone properly understood by managers themselves. And let's not forget the unpaid overtime. Try bringing these issues up with your employer. Managers become defensive and evasive, says this text. The system is geared away from employees and this is called flexible employment um what about that that education piece and that empowerment piece for employees so that we do understand where we where we stand and what we're paid and what we're worth well i think that there's this disconnect between the lived reality and what what actually all of the talking heads like in in canberra or even in the industry like in unions and and employer groups say um, the, the lived reality is the casual workers don't have flexibility to choose their shifts. The vast majority don't have that. Um, what, what they have is um, being on call, as, as Alan described. Um, so information which actually cuts through the nonsense and describes these things is important. But um, what we find is, is exactly what Alan was talking about. It all comes down to dollars. So the reason why payslips are not clear is because someone's making a dollar. Uh, when when Domino's Pizza um, had to pay penalty rates and casual loading for the first time in 2018, overnight they made 10,000 of their casual drivers part time. So, so all of these issues in our in our experience come back to to money, um, and that's where um, that's why workers are not being properly informed or educated at work. That's why payslips are confusing, but that's also why so many want to keep workers in a casual employment. And also, as Alan said, I mean, I totally agree in that should the onus be on the worker or should it be the other way around? And if many businesses are set up, their profit margins, their entire business structure is set up on almost an exploitation of workers or a casualisation or trainees or young workers... I mean, surely that's what needs to change. It's the it's the business model that's based on something that's not quite right, as opposed to at the end of the line, the worker that's getting a rough trot is the one that says, "Oh, excuse me, but could this be fixed, please?" Yeah, and that's what we found internationally. That's that's where the evidence goes. You have to prohibit certain types of work and certain arrangements. Um, and so, in New Zealand, for example, they abolished junior rates and they abolished zero-hour contracts, equivalent to a casual contract. So, so we know that that is the, the system that will actually um, make make the real change. It's a politically unpalatable unpal- in Australia because we've so long had casual employment sort of entrenched. Um, but but re- realistically, any employer that can not have casual employment shouldn't be using it. Um, it's just, it's it's known. Like if you talk to any WorkSafe or SafeWork regulator, they know that insecure employment creates safety risks. We know that it plays havoc with people's lives outside of work. Um, so where it can be avoided, it should be. It should be a, a primary focus for for politicians to avoid it all at all costs. 
Josh, thank you. Josh Cullinan is Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Uh, Rochelle, I mentioned about, you know, the, the difficulty in trying to get a home loan or, or some sort mm. of loan when you're a casual. There is a text here from Fiona in Ballarat that says you can get a home loan if you're working casual. You need to work 30 hours a week or more for six months. So thank you, Fiona, for that. And this message just says, I could not afford to go permanent. I can't afford to take the pay cut, but I haven't had a break for three years. And another saying, years ago, I was completing my PhD in biochemistry in cancer research in a lab. Research groups around me were closing down due to the lack of funding while fancy new medical research buildings were going up next door. It's so disheartening when you realise that the guys holding the stop signs on construction site are earning far more than the postdoc working to cure a disease. After graduation, I worked away from medical research and I got into construction. That's Alex. And this, I'm 64. I work 30 hours per fortnight in a permanent part-time. That entitles me to fortnightly part-time job seeker allowance. My 30 hours covers my job obligation, but if my job was casual, I would not automatically be entitled to this allowance. Rob's in Seaford. Morning, Rob. Morning, What's yeah, look, just a quick one. It's just um, during COVID, it all sort of came out that because my mate and I works for a large university, um, 60% of the workforce, I heard you talking about percentages, um, 60% apparently of the workers were casual. And I don't know, it, it didn't just didn't seem like there was much care about it. Have you, have you been a casual worker for most of your career, Rob? No, that was, I sort of worked for myself most of the time, uh, but that was just a position that um, was in our field, and so it was just sort of part of what we did, but I'm sure there was a lot of other people that were more dependent on um, that employment than what I was and my mate, um, you know, because it was their, like, full-time sort of, you know, semi-full-time or whatever um, position, you know. Anyway, it's just a bit surprising, the percentage. Yeah, I know, they're high, aren't they? 60%. And then, you know, to hear one of the major fast food chains, which they sort of know how busy they're going to be, 85% of their workforce Yeah, and there's a text here saying it's not not dissimilar on the um, traffic management sites either. Lisa's in Geelong. Welcome, Lisa. Oh, hello. What did you want to share? Um, I uh, can't tell you who I work for because... They'll know who I am. Um, but like last year, we had to sign that enterprise bargaining agreement, which cut our pay. Um, and we, and they said it'd be good for us because then we get paid over the school holidays. But like basically, like that one of the other schools, like it, we, like that takes out twenty percent of our wages now. So we basically pay ourselves in the school holidays but no one actually wants to like bring it up and do anything about it but work said that we had to sign the agreement as well so overall lisa are you worse off under that new agreement yes because we were earning over 30 dollars an hour Oh, gosh, that's not what you want, isn't it? Especially, you know, when you have or feel like you have very little choice in that. Lisa, thank you. Mm. This message, for me, casual equals freedom. The thought of someone telling me when I can and can't have holidays is very foreign to me. I've been employed as a casual worker for 30 years. That's Jack. So from casualisation to employing younger workers and trainees, do you feel like you're paid fairly for the work that you do? And what changes would you potentially like to see to come into place? A young woman stands in a recording booth speaking into a microphone. She's an audio describer. And she's here to tell you that audio description is now available on hundreds of shows on ABC iView, which is great news for more than 500,000 Australians who are blind or have low vision. Or anyone who has trouble following the plot. The audio describer is pointing to herself. Audio description on ABC iView. Sounds like ABC. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Michelle Hunt with you in Melbourne. Bronwyn O'Shea joining you from ABC Wodonga. Talking about 
well, fair pay, Bron. Do you feel like you are paid fairly for the work that you do? And that might be your per hour rate, or it might be the contract that you have or don't have, or it might be that someone new comes in, especially this is in reference to hospitality, but if someone's been working in a kitchen for 30 years and someone comes in that's only just started... Should you be paid the same amount if you've got mm. more experience? But fundamentally, the work is the same. It's a really tricky thing to discuss. And it really comes down to how we decide what to base that that fairness or that measure on, doesn't it? Is it about the responsibilities that you have? Is it about the qualifications you hold? Is it about how hard you work and how much effort you put in when you're there for your nine to five or beyond? How do you work out what someone's um, work input is worth? And is it up to the employee... Yes. to say, hang on, I'm not being paid fairly here or I would like to go and be made permanent. But as Alan said earlier, hang on, should that be your responsibility because you potentially risk your job? Should it not already be set into place and you can just opt in or opt out? Mm. David Bissell is a professor of geography at the University of Melbourne and has interviewed a whole range of workers, particularly in the gig economy industry. Hi, David. Hi there, how are you? Good. What did you find about the way that gig workers are paid and and whether or not that that is considered fair? Yeah, look, I think this is such an important conversation that we're having now. And um, fundamentally, as you've been saying, it is about fairness and equity. So, yeah, we've done a bunch of interviews with gig workers uh, in Victoria. We interviewed 90 uh, workers. And, um, yeah, quite frankly, we were really, really... um, uh, disappointed uh, and shocked by the experiences that um, that they're having. So, so when we talk about a, a gig worker, there's probably a whole yes. lot of people that don't know what that really is. So, what is a gig worker? <laughs> yeah, sure. So, a gig worker is someone who isn't on a standard uh, employment contract. Uh, it's basically like piecework. So, you get paid uh, for each job that is done. So, we're probably all quite familiar with uh, services uh, like food delivery services or. Um, uh, things like Uber to, to travel about. The people that are providing uh, those services are paid uh, on a per job basis. And uh, so from a positive perspective, that obviously gives them a lot of flexibility. But what we found is that workers are really, really dissatisfied, principally uh, with low pay. And I think at, at the moment when we're all uh, having those conversations around the cost of living, this yeah. conversation only gets more important. And it's more important too when we look at who is taking up this type of work and why. And there is a large percentage of newly arrived people to Australia that take up this work. We also know that migrants are very unfairly paid. So this is an exploitation of a certain part of our community and demographic to our community. Yeah, look, you're absolutely right. And I think that uh, what we've found in our research is that actually it's a really complex picture. So people in the gig economy, we tend to talk about them as if they were one big mass uh, of people in the same situation. But you're absolutely right. There are people who are newly arrived migrants who can't get into work in any other way. But right at the other end of the scale, we found that there were lots of people, for example, transitioning out of uh, work into retirement who actually were quite lonely and missed social connection. And so they actually did a little bit of uh, driving for um, uh, for rideshare services on the side in order to make them feel kind of useful and that they were contributing to the community. So you're right, it's a really, it is a complex picture out there. David, stay with us. David's in Monsaggy. Welcome, David. Yeah, hi, everybody. What did you want to um, say? I was um, working as a casual for 10 years in a in a supermarket's warehouse up in Brisbane for years and didn't have a holiday for 10 years or a family holiday. Yeah, right, because of work and that insecurity of work. That's a long time, 10 years to be casual, David. Yeah, I eventually become permanent and and then I appreciated the the time you could go camping with your kids and be be with them and have that quality time. But when you're casual, you're working... Like any any time they set you up, it could be overnight, it could be morning or evening or rotating shifts and 12-hour shifts with overtime. And But mm. you never put the money aside for your annual leave, your long service leave. David, was that what stopped you saying, you know, no, I'm not going to take any shifts for this week or two weeks. I want to go and have a holiday with my kids. Was it Was it the money or was it not wanting to say no to work in case it wasn't there when you got back? Mm. 
it'd be more financial literacy probably when I was young and stupid and you spend everything you earned or you put it all on the mortgage and yeah <laughs> well, I'm glad you got your permanency in the, yeah. in the long it's run. all hindsight isn't it and just finally David do you think the if there are because there's proposals at the moment to change casualisation and to give you let's say after five years or ten years you say I want to be made permanent but do you think the that emphasis should be on you the worker or should it be on the employer it's it's a hard, hard thing because the way they worked where we were, if you weren't at work or you were sick or something, they took hours off you, so you got less hours. It was a either you you come in all the time or you don't get any time, and so you got rewarded more hours for being there more. So mm, yeah, as <laughs> a catch catch twenty two. So yeah, permanence. Have it have a lot more um, leverage than a casual. The casual they can just cut your hours whenever they need to. Oh, David, thanks so much for sharing your story. There's so many like it. David Bissell is with you as well, a professor of geography at the University of Melbourne. One area that we haven't discussed as much, and David, I don't know whether this is something that you've looked into a lot. I know you've done a, a lot of research into gig workers, but this text is from Dee and it says, you guys haven't mentioned the casualisation in the healthcare workforce. This is a major problem in our public hospitals, particularly in aged care. This is all highlighted during COVID. As a past coordinator of a major metro hospital I've even discussed this with my MP to no avail. In nursing casual employees are far better off than the permanent employees as there's always a shift for casuals. But casuals in healthcare can and do cancel their shifts without penalty whereas in a hospital they must pay if the employee has left home to attend. The idea of I mean, even our healthcare, something that we rely on so much, even that's casualised. Absolutely, yeah, and I think it's it's a it's something that we've been seeing over the last ten years or so in sectors that we probably wouldn't have associated with this kind of um, flexible labour. So, the care sector for sure, but we've heard a lot about outsourcing in the transport sector uh, and in the mining sector too, and and kind of across all of those uh, sectors, the, the experiences of insecurity uh, uh, are, are largely similar. So, around financial hardship, so around half of all Australian gig workers make less than the minimum wage, for example, even though they work very long hours. And we've already heard from some of your callers about the, the idea of long-term insecurity. Um, you know, you can't plan ahead. You maybe can't get a mortgage. But it's also about the experience of actually being in the workplace too. So being treated differently by colleagues. And certainly some of the help, we, we actually did interview some healthcare workers for, uh, for the project that we're using gig work platforms. And, uh, and they spoke about things like isolation and disconnection. So it's both the really super hard end kind of financial things that, that, mm. that obviously are getting the, the spotlight, but it's also those kind of less tangible feelings of actually being in the workplace around disconnection and isolation. And mm. the two need to be taken together. It's a great it's a great point. It's actually not just about money as important as money is. David, knowing that there are so many people, gig workers, who are not earning what you'd call a fair wage, what if that changed and and what would that need to look like would there be a whole lot of industries that would just collapse because mm. they became unviable right. if they had to pay more yeah look and and that's the that's the catch 22 you know the reason that we can get cheaper ride shares than maybe paying for say like traditional taxis is because the the kind of the costs are um you know are lower across the board so for example there's a, a proposal at the moment uh, from industry super funds uh, to establish super entitlements for gig economy workers. Uh, and, you know, it's a really good argument uh, that people in the gig economy miss out on millions, uh, hundreds of millions, in fact, in super contributions because they're independent contractors. But uh, they've also figured out, of course, that an 11% additional cost of platforms is going to cost those platforms a lot. And, you know, we've we've remembered um, in, in kind of recent months, the collapse of Deliveroo, for example, shows that these platforms margins are super tight. So, you know, absolutely, we need to be pushing for reform in this space. We need to be giving workers uh, the opportunity to, uh, you know, to fairness and equity with regard to uh, pay and conditions. 
Um, but we've also got to look at the kind of bigger picture as well. Uh, and part of that is about the platform company's responsibility to provide those conditions. And how much of it is our responsibility as consumers as well when it comes to gig workers? Someone was telling me the other day that it was cheaper for them to order a can of Coke on Amazon and have it delivered to their house than it was to walk down the street and buy the same <laughs> can of coke i'm serious and there's a message here that says i've never used a gig worker but my girlfriend used uber eats in aubrey the other day the delivery cost was 33 cents how can this be how can these people make any money it costs 33 cents in petrol just to start the car it's all out of whack david and we can't play ignorant anymore because this type of work this type of delivery services and gig workers they've been around for long enough now Oh, totally. And and we actually did some interviews with consumers too. We spoke to 30 consumers uh, and did a real deep dive into how they feel about using these services. And actually, th- your point there was totally reflected in a lot of our conversations. You know, people don't sit back passively and use these services guilt-free. We heard a lot of people talking about guilt at work conditions. We heard people talking about how they felt like they were being de-skilled. In fact, I remember one person who who realized they were ordering too much on Deliveroo for food, she says, oh, these services are teaching me helplessness. So I think it's really interesting that actually consumers really are grappling with the ethical dilemmas around these things. And, you know, that does eventually tip into what people do. So, yeah, I think it's important to bear that in mind. Yeah, great point. David Bissell, thank you. Professor of Geography at the University of Melbourne. It's interesting, isn't it, Rochelle, the idea of, well, we might not think that's fair, but then are we prepared to pay more for the services they provide in order to, to raise their wage? There's a text here too from Ash in Ballarat about gig workers saying universities are rife with casualisation. Early mid-career academics are underpaid and overworked. Teaching and marking is gig work by another name, while vice-chancellors make hundreds of thousands per year. And this tenure should have nothing to do with it in terms of what you get paid in comparison to someone else in the same job. But whether you're uh, do more or you do different things, then yes. Do you train the new starters paid more? Do you have increased responsibility like overseeing the others? Then you should be paid more. Making decisions while others do the same job don't get paid more. But the whole concept of just, I've been doing it for 20 years, is meaningless if everything else is the same. That's from Rob. And Gina says, many years ago when I was casual, I couldn't come in on a Sunday because my toddler ended up in hospital. The manager had to work with a hangover and punish me by not giving me shifts the following week. She told me her intention and reasons, but I'm sure this kind of unfair treatment still exists today. Let's have a chat to Suzanne. Suzanne is in Northcote. Good morning. Hello. Yes, um, I have studied uh, fair, well, minimum wages in the US several years ago, and I think it's a question of what sort of society we want to live live in. Um, if you look at what happened, and, and you know, some might argue that that in the USA they base their wage system on a free market and individuals being able to negotiate. Well, if you look at what happened in the US, you have a very low minimum wage in a lot of states you don't have a minimum wage at all you have people who maybe have to work two full-time jobs and still don't earn enough to to rent a house or or Mm. buy a house so they're living in their cars so we we have to ask ourselves you know do do we want to live in this sort of society or do we want to provide what is a, a wage which is relevant to what other people earn, which recognises the sorts of skill that, that workers have um, and, you know, sort of ju- just not treat people like this is this is a so-called free market where people are just like tomatoes, you know, the, the, there's a, 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 you can force a low price for tomatoes, you know, yeah. but you're dealing with humans who have, who live in a society. So, Absolutely. Yeah, I, and I think you're right, Suzanne, in that we have to ask what sort of society do we want to live in? And like when we were speaking about gig workers, you know, sometimes we feel like it's totally out of our control and sometimes maybe we don't realise that we have more control than we recognise and even if that's as consumers, we can speak up more or we can demand more or we can choose not to use certain services. So do you feel like you're paid fairly for the work that you do? 
on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Michelle Hunt with you in Melbourne, Bronwyn O'Shea, your co-host this morning, joining you from ABC Wodonga. And looking at what constitutes fair pay and how some business models are potentially set up, Bron, to make sure that their profits are all right, but then the pay and the way the workers get treated isn't necessarily above board. Kim Randall is the founder and the CEO of Fair Supply. Now, this is a, a law firm dedicated to eradicating modern slavery and supporting ethical supply chains. Kim, is a lot of what we're talking about now, is it too dramatic to say, well, it's almost a form of modern slavery? So I think that one of the features of modern slavery is a lack of freedom of movement and coercion and control. So in terms of unfair wages, it is certainly an indicator of exploitation, but without coercion or control, um, it's not modern slavery. But certainly when we're looking for risk factors of exploitation, that is one that is certainly one of the risk factors. So how do we ensure that you know your your CEO of fair supply how do we ensure that things are fair so that no matter what work you do um, what background you have what power you have in that workplace that you are fairly paid yeah and so that's a really interesting question because what we know about exploitation and living wage is that it's often hidden deep within the supply chain. So in circumstances where companies don't have visibility over the supply chain, they certainly don't have visibility that workers are being paid a fair and living wage. What we know um, about modern slavery is that it is a gendered issue. So one in every 130 females globally is living in um, in modern slavery and women and girls account for 71% of all victims of modern slavery. And so understanding your supply chain is really the first step to um, ensuring that workers are being paid a living wage and fairly because you just simply can't fix what you can't see. So in terms of engaging with suppliers and undertaking due diligence as part of the procurement process, these are the first steps to actually understanding whether the workers in your supply chain are getting paid fairly. You have to want to look though, don't you, Kim? Mm. Because, you know, especially with, I'm thinking, um, with fast fashion, you know, suddenly there was a whole lot of heat and pressure on some of the the big... um, uh, you know, clothing retailers mm. and lo- labels to actually say, well, do you know what the people in Bangladesh say or China are actually making to stitch together that T-shirt? Without that scrutiny and that public pressure, it's very easy for a business to just say out of sight, out of mind. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really um, interesting point. Only last week, the Fashion Transparency Index examined what the world's largest fashion brands disclosed about their supply chain practices and their impact. And one of those findings were that only 1% of major fashion brands disclosed the number of workers in their supply chains being paid a living wage. And when we talk about a living wage, that's a, um, that is essentially a wage that um, ensures people have enough money to pay for basic living needs. So education, housing, food, water, and in circumstances where, you know, fashion is is a significantly, um, a significant product that's imported and at risk of modern slavery, mm-hmm. those statistics are just incredible. Who should the responsibility come down to? Is it us, the consumer, to put the pressure on, like Bron was just saying? Or should it be the business, the label, the shop, the department store, whoever it is, no matter how small or how large, to do their due diligence to make sure that they are doing the right things? Because as consumers, it's, you might want to find out this information, but it's really, really hard. It's not even fine print. The print doesn't even exist in the first place. So who should the responsibility fall to? Yeah, the responsibility needs to fall to the company so that consumers can be 
satisfied that the products that they're purchasing from a particular company, um, that that type of due diligence has been done by the company. At least in Australia, we've got legislation that requires organisations with revenue over $100 million to identify the risks of slavery in their supply chains. And we're seeing a huge increase in regulations and legislation globally placing that type of responsibility and increased supply chain transparency regulations actually on the company so that as consumers um, we can be assured if this is something that is important to us as consumers that the companies are actually um, are actually undertaking the due, due diligence on their consumers behalf. Kim, it's easy to sort of think of modern slavery and bundle it up with the big guys and the big end mm. of town and big business, but I'm very aware that you know even a, a tiny little micro business could be using um, a personal assistant or a virtual assistant they are now from overseas and paying you know a few cents per hour, um, which is great for them. They can run a really you know profitable small business, but are they really thinking about the impact of of that VA? From, from another country who's on an incredibly low wage. Yeah, and I, I think um, that is really important um, to consider, again, that living wages and minimum wages are being paid. And I think that there's a lot of... Um, there's a lack of education and awareness about the difference between a minimum wage and a living wage because in a lot of countries the legal minimum wage is not actually a sufficient living wage for the worker. So even in circumstances where in a particular country you can satisfy yourself that you're paying a legal minimum wage, it might not be enough money for that person to live in that country. And so that's something that, um, you know, people need to consider. We found the highest risk of slavery is at tier three and four of the supply chain so if people are looking for um, labor outside of australia it's very likely mm. that there there may not be that information available kim thanks so much for your time and your insights thank you so much kim randall the founder and ceo of fair supply this message just says there's just too much disparity now you've got people on more than 200 grand a year which no one needs while others are trying to live on less than 20 grand and another saying you've just jumped the shark to use the term modern slavery in the same discussion about casual workforce in australia as irresponsible and belittles the actual modern slavery these are two separate topics that should never be confused i don't know about that and i don't know if they're confused but they are certainly intertwined when we're talking about what people get paid for the jobs that they do and the work that they do and understanding what a job is worth i I think the two can be discussed at the same time and should be and they all come down to what's fair don't they and especially in a global economy where people can hire someone on the other side of the world it, it all is relevant this text too the solution to low wages ceos and managers get paid a multiple of the wage paid to their lowest paid worker no bonus deals see what that does to minimum wages says mark at Woodend. So many messages on this. What about things like musicians and contractors? They're entitled to no super. It's very clear as well. It's so hard to actually get paid for it. And next week, we're actually going to be doing a program on how possible is it to make a living, to earn a wage if you are an artist. Let's have a very quick chat to Greg, who's in Windsor. Morning. Uh, Morning. Very quickly, um, I run a swim school, our staff, uh, we have two permanent. Every year, I offer my staff the opportunity to go permanent. Every year, they say they want casual because they get the 25% loading and 30% on weekends. And my attitude is that if they don't put that money away for when they are sick or when they have holidays, that's their problem. Okay, good to get your point on that, Greg, as well. Thank you. Apologies to all the texts that we didn't get to read out and to calls that we didn't get to. We have discussed lots of different areas that sort of dance around some of these points, Bron. So subscribe to the conversation now. Go to the ABC Listen app. If you subscribe, you can go back through our pod and through our feeds and look at lots of different programs on this. But in terms of what defines a fair wage, there are so many industries here that are reliant on casuals, which surprised me, Bron. I don't know about you. 
No, and the the number, the percentage of workers that are casual in some of these workplaces, I was astonished to see up around 80, 90%. So, yeah, really eye-opening. Bromon O'Shea, as always, joining us from ABC. Wodonga, thank you. I'll speak with you soon.